Spirit of God, as we look into your word again today, we need your wisdom and your insight so that what we share today comes from the throne room of heaven. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Give us eyes, ears, souls, spirits that are attentive to your voice, for we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. In Exodus chapter 14, do you know what happens? God parts the waters and the people of Israel walked through on dry land and when the Egyptians tried to follow, what happened? The waters came over and they all drowned. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha is there at home and the Aramean army come and they try to seize him because they know he's a man of God and if they get rid of him, they realize that the presence of God, the power of God, the foreknowledge of God goes with Elisha. So they surround him and, and his servant comes out and sees the whole of the Aramean army. And do you remember what Elisha says? Don't worry, because God's army is bigger than the Aramean army. And he says, Lord, open his eyes. And the servant sees all the fiery chariots of God's angelic army surrounding. And then Elisha said, make them go blind. And so they do. And he leads them then into Samaria where they have a big feast all together. And then he says, let them go. And so they do. In 2 Kings chapter 7, the Aramean army come back. And they lay siege to Samaria. And they lay siege to it for a number of, quite a while, until there's no food left inside Samaria, in the city. And there's some, uh, some lepers, I think they are, that are kind of going, well, there's no food here, so why don't we just wander over to the Aramean camp and see if they've got food there instead. So they do, and when they get there, guess what they find? Nobody. Why? Because God, through Elisha again, prays, and the Aramean army hear, or think they hear, the sound of hooves and trumpets coming towards them, and they figure that God must have sent, or the Israelites must have uh, somehow summoned up the Egyptians, and maybe the Assyrians succumbed to their aid, and so they leave everything and run home. And these lepers go in and go, well, this is a field day. Like we, They've left their spears. They've left their money. They've left their food. We'll bury some of it. We'll, we'll take it for ourselves while they're all stuck there in, in the city. And then they have a moment of conscience where they said, perhaps we should go tell them. And so they do. And God wins an amazing victory. Second Kings chapter 19 what happens there? Do you remember? The, Ara, not the uh, Aramean, the Assyrian army laid siege to Jerusalem. 
And King Hezekiah, he prays. And he says, Elijah, Elisha, what are, what are we going to do? We're going to die. And Elisha prays. And God says, don't worry. I've got this sorted. And in the night, he sends one angel. And the angel wipes out the whole Assyrian army. 185,000 soldiers lie dead. Problem fixed. Let me ask you a question today. If God does that in the pages of Scripture, why does he not do that in Ukraine with Russia? Discuss. That could take a while, huh? I'm sure that question has been on your mind. I'm sure you've heard people talk about it. I'm sure it has been raised. Why, why God, when you have the power to do something, do you not do anything? Why do we read day after day, do we see on the news day after day of people suffering and struggling? Why day after day do we I get these posts in my Facebook inbox from Ukrainian people having to leave their homes because their homes are no more. Saying, please, is there any sponsors in the UK? Because I need somewhere to live. Why doesn't God do something? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is that God's not the cause. God did not cause the war between Russia and Ukraine any more than God causes any wars, particularly like that. War happens because of us. James 1, verses 13 to 15 says this. Let me read it to you. James 1, 13 to 15 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It comes, as we know, from us. 1 John 1, 5, over a few pages, says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, God is, is good. God, that there isn't the capacity, if you like, within God to do these things. 1 Corinthians 14 Verse 33 says this. Let me get that for you. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And there are many other passages that we could bring up. 
So the Bible says, well, it, become, it comes, these things happen as a result of broken humanity, right? It's us that cause these things. It's us that want something and we, we can't get it, so we take. But it still begs the question, doesn't it? Even if we are the cause, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't God just stop it and step in? Could God intervene? Could God step in and stop it? Could God send another angel down and say, that's enough? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my angelic force into the Donbass region. Russians, you're not going to cross that way. Ukrainians, you're not going to come that way. That's it. I will be like a wall of angelic hosts. Could God do that? If the answer is yes, then why doesn't he? Why do we see all the suffering and the pain and everything else? Isaiah 55, God says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than you will ever understand. That was the whole story of Job, isn't it? Job saying, why is this happening? And then finally, he realizes at the end when God shows up, after all his friends have tried to make up human answers to the, his problem, to his situation, and Job says, I just don't understand. And that's the end of the book, really unsatisfactory kind of ending, but that's the ending of the book, right? Basically, God says, I see, when you can see the way I see, when you understand the way I understand, then you will know the way I know. And so this morning, in this part of the message that I want to bring to you, you need to understand that this is my thinking and not biblical thinking. Because the Bible never really answers to a satisfactory level, this question. Why doesn't God intervene? Now, with that caveat in mind, I think the answer is, could he intervene? Yes. But God's intervention has consequences. Let me explain it like this. Okay, Sheila, do you want to come up the front? You probably don't want to come up the front. That wasn't a question, really, was it? Okay, and uh, Brian, you want to come? Uh, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, here we go. Let me, let me, um, this is my phone. Sheila, this is my phone. Look after it, will you? It's my work phone. Brian doesn't have a work phone. He wants my work phone that Sheila has. 
So what does Brian do when he doesn't have a work phone and he wants my work phone that Sheila has? Bearing in mind the size differential we're looking at right here. What does he do? He's very polite. He says, please give me the phone. Please give me the phone. He's polite because he's in church, right? And in church, you need to be polite. And Sheila says, I'm going to give it to Pauline. No, that's not what you say. You just say no. Just say no, right? I gave it to you. I didn't, I didn't give you permission to give it to her. Right. So what, what happens now generally in life if Brian wants what Sheila has and Sheila's not going to give it to him? What happens? A tug of war. That's a polite way of putting it. Brian goes, huh, exactly. I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm going to take it from you. Don't you, Brian? Bearing in mind this is my phone, so be careful, right? So what happens normally in life? What happens if they were three years of age, four years of age? They'll be rolling around for, do you want to? No, no, no let's not go there, right? But you know what happens. He says, I want that. I'm bigger and I can take it, so I'm going to take it from you. Now, I am the parent with my two troublesome kids. So have a fight over the phone. Go on, pretend fight. Don't hurt one another, right? Okay. So they're fighting. What does the parent do when the parent sees it? Normally what happens is what? What would happen with Sheila? Daddy, Brian's beating me up again, right? You've been there? Dad, help, help, right? Yeah, Brian, he's, he's nasty. That big brother, why did you ever have him? He's horrible, right? And what does the parent do? Exactly. Liz, go to the top of the class. You come in and you say, give me that phone. Right? <laughs> you lost the phone. <laughs> there you go. That's not the right phone. That's your phone. <laughs> right? Thank you. Okay. And then what happens next? You... Go to your room. Go to your room. You go to your room. And you're, you're grounded for the next 125 years. Right? That's what happens. Now, that's life, isn't it? Okay? Starts young, but it doesn't change throughout life, sadly. Now, when I stepped in, what happened? Before that, they had a choice. Brian had a choice to stop grabbing, stop fighting. Sheila had the choice, well, I could have given him the phone. We could have shared the phone. We could have, okay, there was a choice. But when the parent steps in, what happens? Exactly, Liz, right? I make the decisions. You guys don't have a choice. Give me the phone. Go sit down, go to your rooms. I'll deal with you later. Right? Choice is done away with. Right, I'm going to put this away before it uh, starts another argument. Could God intervene? Yes, he could. But what are the consequences of God's intervention? Think back to those stories I told you. 
Did the Assyrians have a choice? Did the Arameans have a choice? You see, when God intervenes, choice is removed. Now, God desires all creation to love, right? There are so many passages we could look at in the Bible. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another, right? John, gospel. And love requires freedom. You can't love if you're forced to. How many of you love Boris Johnson? I tell you, love Boris Johnson. I can't force you to love Boris Johnson, can I? Wasn't a great response here from the Tory party, right? But I, I can't force you to love anybody. I can't force you to say, you know, love Putin, love Boris, love Biden, love me. I can't force you to love me. I can love you, but I can't force you to love me. And when God intervenes, when God says that's it, choice is done away with. And therefore, the freedom to love is done away with too. Yes, the freedom to hate is done away with, but you can't take away the freedom to hate if you, without taking away the freedom to love. You understand? So could God intervene? Sure he could. But it comes at a massive cost. Our freedom. Intervention eliminates that freedom. And God will only intervene, it seems to me, where absolutely necessary. Now, the question then comes... Well, why intervene here and not here? Why in the pages of Scripture, in Exodus, in, in uh, Second Kings and so on, does he intervene and not intervene elsewhere? God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But it seems to me, that God intervenes only where salvation history is at stake. And what, what do I mean by that? We've been looking through the physical and the spiritual realms, right? At the plan of God. And I'm taking you on a journey from Genesis through to Revelation on his plan. Where that plan... requires the intervention of God, he comes. The Assyrians would have wiped out his promised people. God said, that's not going to happen because they're part of my plan, right? Where, where that plan, the Egyptians were going to wipe out the people of Israel, and he said, that's, that's my plan is for them to leave here, not to be wiped out in the desert. Where it comes against that big plan of God, it seems to me, God intervenes in a big way. 
But outside of that, God is, seems to me so reluctant to intervene in a big way because of the consequences of it. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that's the complete answer. I just invite you to think along that. When you think about why doesn't God intervene? We're going to look at it a little bit further today from another perspective. So park that for a minute. And let's go back to what we do know from the pages of Scripture. Because the same question in reverse, if you like, is what I want to look at today, which is why did God send his people to wipe out the existing people in Israel when they went in? How come God was pro that and not pro some of these other things that we've been talking about? Let's remind ourselves really quickly. So the Bible talks about two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, interrelated God created it this way with the Elohim, the generic term, meaning all the, those in the spiritual realm, and humanity and creation in the physical realm. And there are places where those realms meet, the council room of God, where God gives the order in both realms, and that's where his will is carried out. First one we see is in Edom, we see it in the tent of meeting, and then in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, we see it on Mount Sinai when he gets the Ten Commandments and so on. These council rooms on earth. And God gave us on earth this, Genesis 1:28, this mandate, if you like. This is what we're here to do, all of humanity. To be images of God, to rule, not rule as in push down and, and lord it over, but rule as in Use the authority that God gives us to nurture and to grow and make everywhere like Eden in that kind of balance and harmony. Be an imager of God, he said. The problem was we didn't like it and neither did the spiritual realm. And in both cases, we looked at our disobedience towards it. And the symbol in the Bible is the apple in Eden where we said, you know, God said, you can do anything, but just don't do that bit. And we went, yeah, but that's the really bit we want to do. So we're going to do it anyway. Um, our ways are better than your ways, God. So we're going to do it our way. And it happened in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. And in the spiritual realm, in Genesis 6, what happened? Do you remember? We try to change things. So when we took it on ourselves, when we did it our way, God said there are consequences to that. You're kicked out the garden. You can't be in the council room anymore. Spiritually, they're not in the council room. Physically, we're not allowed into the council room anymore in that sense as we used to be. The harmony is broken. So we did, and in the spiritual realm, they did what we always try and do, which is fix our own problems. We said, hey, we don't really need God to fix our problems. We don't really need God at all. We can do it ourselves. So in the spiritual realm in Genesis 6, they decided to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And it talks about the Nephilim. Do you remember? That the sons of God, that the sons of these Elohim, these fallen angels, had relationships with human women and formed these giants, the Hercules, right, that filled the earth. And they said, we're going to do it our way, not God's way. 
And we're going to fill the earth with our people who follow us and not God. And that's what we're going to do. And in the physical realm, what did we do? Genesis 11. We built a tower and we said, we like it here in Babel. We're going to build a tower where God comes down to us. We don't have to go where God wants. We don't have to go to the ends of the earth because we like this place. Right? We're going to be here and we're going to stay here. And we don't want to do what God wants us to do. We're going to do what we want to do. And God, you come down when we want you to come down. And you can buzz off again when we want you to buzz off again. And you be at our calling doing what we want, right? Well, God didn't like either plan. After Genesis 6, 1 to 7, what comes next? The flood said, forget this for a game of marbles. I'm going to start again. And then you get the flood. And after... Genesis 11, what comes? The languages. He says, you know what? I'm going to mix you all up so you don't understand one another. There'll be people from up north and down south, and they won't have a clue what they're talking about to each other. Right? And we'll have Scots and Irish and everybody else and French and Germans and, you know, people from all over. the. They'll all have their own language, and you won't have a clue, and then you'll separate and go as I told you to go. Then what happened was that even when we went, even when we did this, we carried on in this way. And God finally said, you know what? In Deuteronomy 32, I I give up. I'm going to change the plan. I've got a different plan now. Because you're not going to follow this plan. I've seen what you do. I've seen your reluctance to follow what you should do. So the plan is going to change. And so what God did was he split the whole earth and said to the Elohim that would fallen well, you can go and be Elohim over all that. And people, if they want to follow you, they can follow you. But I tell you what, there's going to be one place on earth called Israel that will be mine. They will follow me and they will be like a beacon for the whole world to see what it means when you follow the King of Kings, the real God, Yahweh, the God of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. They will follow me, and as they follow me, then everybody will see the blessing that comes when you actually worship the real God. And they'll think, why are we worshiping these fallen beings? What's all that about, right? So he said, you can have everywhere except Israel. And so he took this people through Abraham, right? made them into a nation. Then because of famine, they went down into Egypt and Joseph was there. And you know the story of Joseph. And then they grew and they lived in Egypt. And then they, the Pharaoh who was blessing the people of Israel in Egypt changed. And after a few generations, they said, oh, these guys are good for our service. So we'll make them into brick makers and we'll suppress them. And they're getting kind of numerous. So we're going to do them in and they cried out to God and they say God this is not the kind of history that we had in mind here and God sent Moses to come and rescue them right and they took them out of Egypt I've got a pointer here somewhere oh look how cool is that over here and they went across where they, God defeated the uh, Egyptian army and they went all the way down, somewhere down here, which is Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments. And then 
they walked all the way up here, up by the sea, and then up to this place here, which is right there. Okay, see it up there? Called Kadesh Barnea. And there they said, you know what we're going to do? We're right on the border. It took them two years. Two years not walking every day. Most of the time they spent down at Sinai, right? They sat there at Sinai, and then God said, on you go. So on they went. So after two years, they're at Kadesh Barnea, and they're about to go into the promised land, and they said, let's send out some spies and see what this land looks like. So they did. Twelve spies. So they sent the spies out, and the spies went out for 40 days, and they said, they came back, and you know what they said? They said, whoa, this place is nice. We've been in the desert for two years. I mean, any, anywhere is going to look nice, right? So they came back in. And this is what they said in Numbers 13. When they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. That we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. What did they see? Sorry? A nice place. They did see a nice place, but the nice place was inhabited with who? The Nephilim. Hang on a minute. I thought the Nephilim were wiped out when he sent the flood. Isn't that why he sent the flood? Well, yes, they were. But then guess what the fallen angels did? They came back. Because fallen angels don't get wiped out with floods, right? And they had relationships again with women. And guess where they decided to populate? In Israel. They said, yeah, it's a beautiful place, but it was full of these, well, we would call it the demonic races. It was full of people who were, the, from, were descended from the lineage of the fallen angels. Now, why would they do that? Because they knew that's where God wanted to set up. God said, you can have the rest of the world, but this is my place. So where would you think the fallen world would go and set up their headquarters? In God's place. 
And so the people of Israel went there, and Joshua and Caleb said, we're going to take these guys. And the rest of them said, not a chance. You see how tall they are? You see how big they are? You see the kind of cities? Yeah, the land's beautiful, but we haven't got a hope. We're, we're fighting against, not just against humans. We're fighting against, like, semi-deity kind of things, right? You've seen all those movies with, uh, with Hercules and all that lot? right? That's what they're thinking. We're fighting against, they're, they're not, they're not human, right? They're, they're human and angelic, fallen, all combined together. How on earth are we going to, us, who have just kind of wandered for two years in the desert, so they're looking a bit scratchy, right? How are we going to take over this land? It's impossible. It's not going to happen. You see, God was very specific about the people they needed to remove. In Deuteronomy 7, it gives us seven nations. God said, you can only attack the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Try and say that really fast. These are the people you're allowed to attack. But then it also said you can't take other people, right? There are others that you cannot attack. It says the Moabites, you're not to touch them. It says the, uh, the Amalekites, you can't touch them. And God listed the people and he said to, to, uh, to Moses and to Aaron, he said, these are the people you can attack and these are the people you don't touch. God's very specific. Why? Because these are the nations that are connected, according to Scripture, to these fallen Elohim. And God says, we need to clean them out. How can we have a place, a place of God, an example for the whole world to see, if within that we have evil nations coexisting with God's promised nation? It's impossible. It's like yesterday, I cleaned, cleaned the back room in the house. I know, don't applause. It's just needed doing. So I cleaned it. Why? Because you, cause I went in there and it was, it was dirty, right? And so when you see the dirt on the carpet and everything else, and I, you know, and you clean it. Why? Because you can't look at a patch of, of your carpet and go, well, that bit's clean and that bit's dirty. And go, well, I'll just focus on the clean bit. Do you do that at home? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Not apart from yourself, right? If you see bits of toothpaste or whatever, the whole thing is dirty, isn't it? You don't look at the clean bits, you see the dirty bits. Yes? So in the people of Israel here, how can God produce a nation that, that is clean, that everybody looks at this holy nation, this royal priesthood? When the enemy has already put in their people. So God said, you need to clean these people out. Clean them out. Just these. Don't touch the other ones. Where there are daughters of men and women, don't touch them. Leave them alone. But these ones are the ones you're to go clean them out. And the Bible tells us that that is what they were to do. 
Were they successful? What do you think? Well, it says, At that time Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country from Hebron, Debir, and Anak, from all the countries of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites, that, these are the Rephidim, uh, Nephilim uh, descendants, were left in Israelite territory only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. Were they successful? Yes and no. They went so far, and then they stopped. Who came from Gath? You'll only know one person that came from Gath, I will guarantee you. Unless you've got relatives there and you say my auntie, you know, Maud or something. But who came from Gath? Goliath. How big was Goliath? He was a very large guy. And when David went against Goliath, what did he say? I come against you in the name of the Almighty. You see, David, when he fought Goliath, it wasn't a physical battle, it was a spiritual battle. Because he knew that Goliath was from the Anakites. That's why they were taunting Israel. That's why they continued to do it. Why, why did the Philistines and all these others continue to oppress Israel? Because Israel didn't finish off the job they were supposed to do. They, left it. they, they went so far, and then they stopped. And they didn't eliminate everybody that they should have done. God used the people of Israel as his vehicle to remove the evil nations that were there. These spiritually evil nations. Other nations, he said, leave them alone. You can coexist with them but not with evil because God's people cannot coexist. You can't have clean, clean and dirty in the same place. It infects. And that's what happened to the people of Israel, isn't it? Because they didn't finish the job, what happened? It just kept on coming back in and in and in and in. And instead of the people of Israel being God's chosen people and doing what they should have done, the infection and the dirt that they left on the periphery crept back in into their nation. That's another story. God wants a nation that is pure, that is holy set apart for his purposes he did that with the people of Israel and he does that with us too you see the battle is not a physical battle it's spiritual battle is not against flesh and blood it's against the principalities and powers When you read the scripture in the physical realm, you're not reading it right. 
When you read the scriptures purely in the physical realm, you misunderstand the whole of scripture. Because the scriptures is about that spiritual realm of what's going on around it. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil who are battling in the heavenly realms. We could go on. I'm going to stop. When Joshua came in, you know, when, when they got to Kadesh and they refused to go in, so they spread this really bad report and they said, these guys are like super beings, right? We can't, we can't do this. Their trust in God wavered. And God said, okay, if you're not going to do it, he said, Moses, tell them they're going to die in the wilderness. And so whether they stayed at Kadesh for another 38 years or they went in on a little loop, we don't really know, but they stayed roughly in the same area. And you know what they did as soon as they heard those words? Oh, don't fancy dying in a wilderness. We'll change our minds. Let's go. And they went and attacked and they got walloped. Because God said, I told you not to attack. Not now. You should have attacked the first time and trusted me. Can't come back. But he said to Joshua when they got back to Kadesh, when they arrived 38 years later, when that whole generation was, had died in the wilderness. God said these words, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. You know, when you face your fears, that's what the people of Israel were doing. The first time, they were afraid, and they died in the wilderness. But you know what happens when you are afraid of something? God will give you opportunity after opportunity to overcome your fear. He'll take you back. He always does. Because he says, you know what, you need to overcome this fear to move on in your relationship. So I'm going to give you another opportunity. It may be down the road a bit, but I'm going to give you another opportunity. The first thing we need to do when we are afraid is to make sure that our life is lined up with God's. Be obedient. John 15, the vine and the branches, he says, I cut off everything that's not bearing fruit, right? Useless. Be obedient. Make sure your life is lined up with God's life. Are you being obedient to God? Because success and overcoming these fears will only come when we're obedient to him. Secondly, he carries on. Keep this book of the law always where? On your lips. Speak the promises of God. Say them. There is power in the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. How did he do it? He said, let there be light. Let there be. Let the God spoke and it comes into being. There is power when you speak the promises of God. Say them out loud. God, your word says, boom. Say it. You see it through the Psalms. You see it through the Scriptures. You see it everywhere you go. God, you said this. I'm claiming this promise right now, and I'm going to speak it out of my mouth. 
Speak. Have that law. Have those promises on your lips. And then think about them. Meditate on them day and night. Think about the promises of God. Learn the promises of God so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And he says, I have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? Because God has promised to be with you wherever you go. He's with you in the wilderness. He's with you when you're facing your fears. He's with you when you're fighting the spiritual battles that seem overwhelming. God is with you. And he said, you know what? When you're facing those fears, when you're coming up in your life to a hurdle, to a, to a challenge and you don't know how to get over it, he says those things. He says, make sure your life, focus on your life. Make sure it's in tune with where it needs to be with him. Secondly, speak the word. Speak it out loud. Speak the promises of God. Let them be on your lips. Meditate on his word. Read it and seek to understand it. Say, Lord, give me spiritual eyes to see your word, to read your word. And then as you face that fear, as you face that challenge, as that hurdle, remember that he's going to go with you wherever you go. He'll never leave you. Never. Sometimes that hurdle is a mountain top and sometimes it's a valley. But be still for the presence of the Lord. The Holy One is here, right? He's with you, whatever that challenge may be. And he will always, always stay with his children. Just close your eyes for a moment. And today, if God, no, if in your life you're facing a challenge, and you don't know what to do, a fear. Maybe it's a medical thing or a relational thing or a, a physical thing or a spiritual thing, whatever it is in your life. A fear of the future or a fear of the past or the present. Whatever that fear is. Lord, I pray right now that we would not be like those Israelites. You told them to take the land. But a generation had to pass away before they were willing to do it. Lord, what a waste of time. Lord, if we are facing a fear today, a fear for the future, Lord, may we know Know your promises. Your promises are always yes and amen. Yes, your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. You're so far above us. We might be holy, but you are holy, holy, holy. You are so far set apart. But Lord, you come and you help and you strengthen. And you tell us to be confident. Be confident moving forward. Not to waver, but to listen to your voice. To know your will. To know your promises and to move forwards with that confidence.
knowing that you are with us. May we have hearts like David, who when he saw one of those fallen superhumans, he took up a stone and he went running towards them. He said, hey, I'm coming at you in the name of Jesus Christ and the name of the Lord Almighty. In our case, in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of his spirit and strongholds fall. When we come with your, in your name. Today, Lord, for those that are facing, that of those that are fearful and facing difficulties, give them your confidence and your strength. Give them your word. And may they know your presence to be overcomers and to move forwards in your name. For we lift all this in the name of Christ. Amen.